Grace, the Amy Santiago of Royal Bloggers. And I'm Jessica, the Dorothy's Boring app of Royal Bloggers. And we'd like to welcome you to On Air, the podcast where two cynical Brits discuss the latest royal news and the truth behind the story. Hello everyone and welcome back to the On Air podcast. I'm just going to say a couple of disclaimers at the start. One, we had some technological issues, so I'm recording this in a different place from where I normally record it, which means that um, it might be slightly echoey or the audio quality might not be fantastic, but hopefully it's not too distracting. We are talking, our first topic today is going, we're going over to Monaco. And this is one that I mentioned on Tumblr we would be talking about. Quite recently, there were some photos that came out of Prince Albert the Prince of Monaco and Princess Charlene, his wife, and their children on a yacht. I think it was in Corsica. Uh, And of course, because of the stories that are always going on about their relationship, these pictures did get in the newspapers and people were talking about, you know, mostly about the state of their marriage and so on and so forth. But what they missed was that there was a much more interesting story lurking in the background of this photograph. I hope that's enticing. I, it, it is enticing. It's like it's, oh. I'm sitting down. I'm eating an ice cream. I'm sitting here. I'm ready for the story. <laughs> so professional. <laughs> I'm sitting in an echoey room because I can't. My work laptop doesn't work, and you're eating an ice cream. Um, I am. It's like it's too hard in ice cream. Oh uh, yeah. So I think before we get into the actual meat of what's happened, there's a couple of things that you need to know about Monaco, which I think are important to understand this story. So one of the things that you need to know is Monaco is tiny. I it's smaller than Central Park in New York City (laughs) also so Windsor Castle is on a plot of land a big plot of land called Windsor Great Park which is you know gardens and a big park and so on you could I've worked out you could fit Monaco inside Windsor Great Park nine times and still have space to spare (laughs) oh my god Monaco is teeny weeny so yeah I, I think everybody knows like Monaco's small but However small you think it is, it's smaller. And so because of the sort of tiny size of it, it means that space is an incredibly lucrative commodity. So property prices are exceptionally high um, and there is big money to be made in the property industry in Monaco. And as an aside, I ended up Googling flats in Monaco and apparently it has the most (laughs) expensive um, flat in the world, which is a penthouse with five floors and it has its own personal water slide that comes out of the side of the building. Wow. I think I want a personal water slide in I don't I would never use it, but I would quite like a personal water slide in my bedroom. So I can like woo down to the kitchen in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> like Wallace and Gromit. Yeah, smart thinking. My second thing that I think it's important to know is taxes. Monaco hasn't had income tax um, since the 19th century. And that actually surprised me because I assumed it was like mid-20th century invention that you know, sort of Prince Rainier era, but it's like, I think, 1869 or something. Yeah, it was a really long time ago. Mm. Yeah. It also doesn't charge other sort of wealth taxes, like capital gains. So capital gains tax is where if you buy a house and then that house, that house goes up in value and then you sell it, you've made a profit, essentially. And so generally under capital gains, you are taxed on that profit. So there's various things in different countries where sort of if you don't reside even if you're a citizen of a country like the UK if you don't reside there for a certain length of time you don't have to pay taxes in 
that country. And so a lot of people live in Monaco. I put sort of quotation marks, they live in Monaco. Um, <laughs> As a, essentially as a way to get around paying taxes because they won't, have, they won't be taxed in their country of origin because they don't live there anymore and they won't be taxed in Monaco because there is no taxes. Not to get on my soapbox about this, but uh, tax is kind of a collective responsibility. Um, it's the closest thing that we have in society to like wealth re- redistribution, theoretically, because it's people giving a share of what they have to the common pot so that it can be used for people who at that particular moment in time have less. And I think if you are a multimillionaire or a billionaire and you go out of your way to avoid participating in that collective responsibility, I think that suggests a general attitude that you have of kind of individualism, what matters, you know, your personal wealth is more important than society at large. Like, I think it just suggests an attitude that a lot of people who live in Monaco are very wealth driven and not very sort of human driven if that makes sense (laughs) no definitely I think it's always been like bizarre to me that someone with like a lot of money wants to keep it all because it's really hard to spend a lot of money like there's that website where it's like can you spend a billion pounds and you buy like 50,000 gold yachts and it's like no I can't spend a billion pounds (laughs) it's really hard what is the point of having something you can't even use but Clearly, lots of people do. But yeah, so I, I think there's just, I'm not saying that every single person who lives in Monaco is a terrible human being. We're talking about the wealthiest of the wealthiest. So if you're a, if you're a state that's really tiny and the vast majority of people who live there are people who are there for tax purposes, it's an interesting cauldron of people. Um, I did find it really weird when I was looking at Monaco at like the population size and every single website gave me a different population size, like with a 4,000 difference. And I was like, you know what the difference is? It is billionaires. Like the billionaires that like live, live there accounted in, you know, the people who actually live there accounted in all of the statistics. And then you've got the statistics of actual, like the people who are domiciled there, the people who pretend to live there. It's a huge difference. The last thing I had that I thought was important was the fact that Monaco is a democracy up until a point. <laughs> so we've talked about this in previous episodes. I think Cones of Power was the one where we did it for the sort of in, most in depth, but different royal families have different levels of power. And in Monaco, Albert has much more control than the vast majority of monarchs in Europe. He is not an absolute monarch. There are still things that he has to check with other people, or there's still limitations on his power in terms of the government and things. But, you know, he's, he has more power than like Carl Gustaf in Sweden, who can't do anything. Um, <laughs> so for example, he chooses the minister of state, who is effectively um, like their prime minister, I guess. Uh, he chooses the head of the Supreme Court, which will become important. And also, Monaco has very little sort of political dissent. So there's actually no left-wing politicians in government in Monaco. You kind of have a situation where decisions are perhaps a little bit less transparent. I mean, I I wouldn't say the Brits are famous for their transparency, but it's still a little bit less in Monaco. And you kind of have power that's concentrated in a much smaller group of individuals. Yeah, it's, it's like it's such a weird country because on one hand, it's a normal country that has schools and hospitals and you know, children that grow up there. But on the other hand, everything is geared towards this large percentage of the population who don't live there and are billionaires. 
For sure. Yeah. So the reason I mentioned these situations is because I think what you kind of have here is extreme amounts of money, power that's concentrated in a small group of people who perhaps don't necessarily work in a transparent way. And you have a population that is more likely to be immoral (laughs) or to not care (laughs) about other people. Basically, it's got all of the ingredients that you need for a corruption scandal. Yeah, it really does. And it's really weird because it's so, like, situated, literally, like, next to France and Belgium and, like, such a standout place (laughs) in terms of everything, even, like, in its physical geography. So that's those are some things that I think are important to know. I think they're important, like, context that sets up this situation you're probably all thinking, where is, when does this yacht come in? Not for a while. In order to understand the situation, we have to go back to 2014. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. So in 2014, the state of Monaco announced that they would be decommissioning some land that they owned in an area. It does have a French name, but I'm not very good at the French. So I'm just going to call it by its English name, which is Fisher. Fisher I can't say it in English. <laughs> <laughs> Fisherman's Esplanade. And basically decommissioning the land just means that they're passing it into the public domain, land that is owned by the state, um, so that it can be developed by a private company. And in this case, they announced that the private company that was going to be developing the land is called the Caroli Group, one of the most powerful property developers in Monaco. But it went downhill pretty rapidly because work didn't start on the plot of land because the organizers of the Grand Prix basically said sorry no you can't develop on this piece of land because we're worried that it's going to interfere with our course so they were bickering back and forth and they couldn't find any resolution to it and so the state asked the Caroli group to withdraw their application to develop on this plot of land they sued the government um, essentially for like a breach of contract and in 2020 they won the state was ordered to pay them 150 million euros and so prince albert who had been kind of not doing anything he hadn't interfered at any point yet he kind of stepped in and said hey guys let's all work out let's get try and find an amicable agreement in september of 2020 the caroli group the state and the grand prix agreed a new deal which would see caroli waive the settlement so the government didn't have to pay them 150 million euros they would amend their proposal slightly to respect the wishes of the grand prix uh, uh runners and they would still be given the land the rights to develop the land so it kind of seemed like it worked for everyone so if we stopped right here i think that it looks like prince albert is a great leader just comes in, sorts things out, so casually. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting. I was reading a lot of articles around this for this uh, this story. And so many of them were talking about how Albert is somebody who apparently, quite like the Queen, hates conflict, like buries his head in the sand, wants everyone to get along. And that's not, I've never really seen him that way, but apparently that's a bit of his reputation is kind of like, he wants to be the peacemaker because he doesn't like people fighting. <laughs> I do. It's such a, like a, like a grandpa-y image. <laughs> Considering Albert's like other images, like Philanderer, <laughs> the Playboy Prince of Monaco. But yeah, on the other hand, he's just like, like, oh no, please can we all be nice to each other? But yeah, I mean, I think it, it was a good deal for the state of Monaco that they they this plot of land was being developed, which they, they will benefit from financially. The Grand Prix is still able to continue, which they benefit from financially, and they don't have to pay 150 million euro settlement. So yeah, if we stop here, which we, we won't, um, 
But if we were to, I think it, it makes Albert look like a really decisive leader. What happened next? In late 2021, a YouTube account was set up by somebody who called themselves The Raven. Already amazing. <laughs> and this Raven directed you towards a website. And uh, I, again, my French is not very good. It does sound better in French, but it's like Dossier de la Roche, which translates in English as The Rock Files, because Monaco is known as The Rock. And this website featured a ton of emails and documents like bank statements and things, um, which essentially implicated some of Monaco's most powerful, um, high profile individuals of acts of corruption. How unfortunately, it's very difficult to translate a PDF of an email in French into English. So I wasn't able to like go through every, I wanted to, I would have, because I find this topic so fascinating. I would have gone through all of these emails to see what they were saying, but it's very difficult because they're all in French. Um, but essentially there was a few, quite a few people who were implicated, but the, the focus was on a group who have now become known as the G4, which means the gang of four. I just love all of these names, the Raven, the Rock Files, the G4, amazing, so great. Sounds like a proper like James Bond. It really does. Yeah, I like, love well, it. But yeah, the rock files. Send the raven in to get G4. It's like, what? And it's just like rich people. <laughs> I love it. If I'm in a corruption scandal, I want a cool name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the gang of four, the G4, um, were the sort of main targets of all of the documents on the rock files. And these people are figures who are close to Albert. So we have Laurent and oh, so much French. Laurent Anselmi, who was Albert's chief of staff, Thierry Lacoste, who was his lawyer, uh, Claude Palermo, who managed his finances, and then Didier Linot, who didn't work for him as such, but he was the president of the Supreme Court. I was able to find like some sort of examples in English um, of the kinds of things that this, uh, this website alleged that they did. And um, so, for example, there was one situation where Thierry Lacoste, so the lawyer, um, was allegedly paid a six-figure sum by a group of property developers so that he would then talk to his good friend, his old friend, Didier Lenot, the president of the Supreme Court, and convince Didier to approve this developer's bid to develop some land in Monaco. And so it was those sorts of things. It was essentially the vast majority of it, and this is important, the vast majority of it was related to kind of these powerful figures and property developments specifically. Um, and yeah, so I think that's that's kind of what came out in the Rock Files. And it really reminded me of um, Michael Fawcett. Oh, yeah. And the, the, so we talked about this, the episode is called I, I Told Daddy No. I remember that. Um <laughs> And that was about Prince Charles's, then Prince Charles, now King Charles, um, his charities and some of the um, issues that they'd had about accepting donations and all sorts of stuff. And it's kind of, it reminded me of the same situation because Albert was not met, as far as I remember, he might have been copied into some of the emails, but Albert was not the target of the Rock Files. But, it, you know, if somebody who is that close to you, Michael Fawcett is Charles's best friend, basically, who keeps getting brought back in no matter what he does, if he's being implicated, you a lot of people will say, well, Charles had to have known. And I think it's the same with this situation. It's like, if there's five friends and four of them are implicated, then you're going to ask yourself, what well, about the fifth one, the most powerful of the group? How was he not involved or aware? Uh, you know, it just common sense. You kind of start to question 
was this person involved, even if they haven't been personally implicated? So it kind of reminds me of that situation. Yeah, I think when I was looking on the rock files, there was a lot from from the Raven um, being like, I wonder if Prince, you know, like very sort of rhetorically being like, oh, I wonder if Prince Albert is aware that his best friend is doing this. Or I hope Prince Albert is going to step in or, um, uh, you know, it's very that these people should have matters of the state and the prince in their, you know, in first place in their mind rather than their own pockets. But they don't. And I was like, and every time I saw Albert's name, I was like, ooh, drama. And then it was always really like sort of rhetorically sort of uh, to the side but then I remembered that in Monaco it you still can't um slander the kit of the king the prince it's it's a you know an imprisonment offense you can get arrested and put in prison for it so of all of them the one you're going to be the most uh quiet about (laughs) is Prince Albert you're not gonna be like yeah Albert did this just in case so you know I'm not suggesting that Albert was involved but I think he had the most reason not to go after him. Yeah, that's actually a fair point. I hadn't even really thought about that. Um, And also, I think when I go through some of this later on, I think that you'll see that Albert, they did not want to bring Albert down. That wasn't the purpose of this. But, you know, I still think it's something that would worry you. Like, even if you're not personally implicated, if everyone you knew was, um, all your best friends, you'd kind of be like, oh. How did I miss this? What? Yeah. Yeah, Didn't exactly. you had a, a group chat without me? Come on, guys. Yeah, that's exactly what it's like. Two people were arrested for this website. But, I mean, one of them's from Monaco, the other one isn't. Um, they're just kind of nobodies, really. They're just ordinary guys. And I've got to be very careful here because I really don't want to get sued. <laughs> a lot of people in Monaco believe that these two guys who were arrested, maybe they did the, gra- the legwork. Um, but they were being instructed by somebody else. This is the entrance of Patrice Pastor, the most successful real estate developer in Monaco. And yes, and I've read again a few articles around Patrice, and he sounds like a nib, is what my parents would say. That's an insult that my parents use. Somebody sounds like a nib. So, you know, property deals, they might put out a tender. Um, so they'll say, we want somebody to develop on this land and different companies will bid for the opportunity to do it and then one of them will win. And he said in this article that the reason that he wants to win contracts um, for property development is not for the money because of the feeling he gets when he crushes everyone. Okay. Yeah. That's a bit terrifying. I suppose yeah. it's a good thing you went into like property development and not, you know, serial killing. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is there are interesting statistics about the number of uh, psychopaths or sociopaths at, at the top levels of business anyway um so yes and i should say patrice denies that he has any involvement in the rock files whatsoever he and i i you know there is no actual evidence these two guys have been arrested he has not been arrested please don't sue me patrice i think you're really great essentially the logic that some people have when they make this accusation is that you know this very competitive man (laughs) um who'd had a chokehold over um Monaco's property development for quite a long or property market for quite a long time was angry that he'd lost um, this opportunity uh, to develop the Fisherman's Esplanade uh, to the Caroli group. And particularly because it wasn't like normal situations where it's put out to tender and they ask for applications, they had just decided to give it to the Caroli group. So I'm talking so much. I'm really sorry, Grace. 
I'm enjoying it. It's like I yeah. listen to a story, but every now and then I get to be like, no way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once it was agreed that the Caroli group's bid for the Fisherman's Esplanade was going to go ahead after all, Patrice lodged a legal challenge. And to be honest, he's actually probably fair to launch this legal challenge because what he said was that every opportunity to develop land should be put out to tender. They should ask companies to put in an um, a con- uh, application and say, this is what we would do with it. This is how much money the state would make. This is the benefit we would have for the people of Monaco. And then the state should decide independently. That did not happen with this fisherman's esplanade opportunity. It just was automatically given to Caroli Group with no sort of um, due process. And so his argument was that it was essentially it was anti-free competition um, and that it was also anti um, like the obligation that the state of Monaco has to do what is best for the people of Monaco. So he'd lodged he'd lodged this legal challenge sort of towards the end of or sort of in 2021, I believe, early 2021. End of 2021, the rock files came out. Early 2022, Patrice's lawyer requested that Didier Lenot, who was the head of the Supreme Court and so would be making a decision on Patrice's legal challenge, recuse himself because he was implicated in corruption in property dealings in the rock files. And so if Patrice had hired somebody, this is all theoretical, I'm not saying he did this. If Patrice had hired somebody to hack these people's computers and get information about corruption, he couldn't have taken that to the court and said, I've hacked these people's emails illegally and I found out that they're corrupt. But if those emails leaked into the public domain some other way, he could then rely on them as evidence of corruption and try and get Didier to recuse himself, which would give him a better chance of winning his legal challenge. Yeah, it was very much like he's, you know, unsurprisingly, adamant that he's got nothing to do with it (laughs) no relation whatsoever don't even know what it is just heard about it um but whoever it whoever is behind it and I don't think you know if it if it wasn't Patrice I don't think they set out to do it to make Patrice pass for some money but it's worked very well in his favor he has benefited greatly from um the rock files which I keep saying the x-files by accident in my head and it's that's a very different thing I was about to I was about to do the theme tune for the x-files but I don't know is it do 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 yeah that's the one yeah so yeah that's what happened is kind of this this bombshell and it's really interesting to me that this hasn't got that the rock files didn't get more coverage because Monaco gets a lot of coverage for such a tiny state it's really hard to find anything in the English language press about the rock files and also, like, when they started coming out, this was, like, peak Albert and Charlene time. Like, she was, it was when she was, you know, in South Africa and uh, all the press was like, oh, there's disaster happening. Like, it was, it was a huge story. And it would have been so easy to be like, maybe she's fled because of her husband's dodgy dealings. But now they are like, it's his philandering he did 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> maybe people are just bored by dry financial stories. Because I think, like, the Queen was named in the... Um, one of the Panama Papers or the Paradise Papers and one of those tax evasion paper things and um, nobody really cared about that either <laughs> except the Guardian yeah it needs to be like a simple one mm-hmm. you know like yeah like oh no Charles took all the money from all of his friends and used it to buy himself a big bouncy castle in the garden yeah. and everyone was like that doesn't sound right we're in a cost of living crisis so anyway all of this is going on Albert, we'll go back to Albert here, um, because this is a royal podcast and I've been talking about Monaco property developers for quite some time now. (laughs) Um, 
and while this was all going on, Albert was kind of lurking around in the background. When he'd been asked about the G4, so the, the gang of four, his friends who'd been implicated in the Rock Files, he wasn't like, they're the best guys ever. But he did kind of say, oh, you know, they were a bit indiscreet, but oopsie daisy. It was kind of, um, it wasn't, he, he downplayed it as being a big deal. And he also was part of, you know, uh, getting involved to make sure that this deal for the Caroli group could continue. And then in March of 2023, so March of this year, Pastor lost his court challenge. And also Didier had refused to recuse himself. And so it looks like, if you go to March of 2023, it kind of looks like Pastor has lost. He'd lost his court case. He'd lost the ability to develop on that piece of land. And Albert hadn't fired any of the G4 at that point. He had, you know, very publicly aligned himself with them and had sort of kept them on. It always felt like, um, obviously I was coming to this much later than March 23. When I looked at it, it was like, ah, oh, here's the end of the story. I was like, oh, he's lost it. Albert's still got his friends. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I see the end has come. Yeah. And I was wrong. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. So in May of 2023, Albert had a private meeting with Patrice Pastor. We don't know what was discussed in that meeting, but they had a meeting. In June, he, hi- he fired two of the four members of the G4. So he, fi- he fired um, Laurent and um, Claude. So his financial manager and his chief of staff. He didn't fire at the time Thierry, his lawyer, um, but he kind of has been sidelined and he uses somebody else for his lawyer instead. Um, there was also a criminal investigation which opened up into the activities of Claude, who had been the lawyer, uh, sorry, the financial advisor for Albert. And in an interview, Albert said, amongst other things, when questions arise, you need to know how to change the people who surround you to find the right path again and to write a new page in your history. And he talked a lot about sort of when you lose trust in people around you, it's very difficult to get that back. And so he was making it clear that his view had kind of shifted, which is really interesting (laughs) Um, because up until May, he seemed to be public, publicly supporting them. Then he has a meeting with Patrice, and then a month later, they're gone. Yeah, I don't know what Patrice said in that meeting, but Albert was like, oh, no, but, I mean, we, I just, I like to imagine Patrice went in and was like, look, I don't care what you think about them, but I just want you to know they've been saying these mean things about you. Um, here, let me see, they called you um, ugly, and they said you've got no style. And he was like, right, that's it, I'm changing my mind. <laughs> they're gone. There's so many possibilities. Like you could let your mind go wild. I always had these really, this really rose-tinted view of Albert's father, Prince Rainier, as like this moral, upstanding gentleman. And it all went a bit downhill when Albert took over, which I think is because he was married to Grace Kelly. And <laughs> that was like was my only logic in this argument. And then when I was doing this research, when Albert sort of came to the throne, he did a lot of interviews. And the press at the time in Monaco was like, wow, what a change, what a good man, because he was talking a lot about ethics and how like, you know, money and virtue should be combined. And the most important part of Monaco's finance is that we are vigilant Mm -hmm. to stop any like dodgy financial activities. And everyone was like, wow, this is a a new start for Monaco. We will no longer be on the most corrupt list of countries. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, whether or not Albert himself was, you know, closely involved in any corruption, corruption very much flourished in the yes. next sort of 
15 years while he was on the throne. And so Claude was furious that he'd been fired. And so um, he launched a legal action against Albert in August for essentially for unfair dismissal, asking for a million dollars and um, and to be reinstated into his position. And again, this has not got as much attention as I thought it would. And it's interesting because, yes, this is a court case and a court case against somebody is always a bit of a hassle. Nobody really wants that. It's not great. But Claude was his financial manager, his personal and official financial manager. And as we've said, corruption generally involves finances. So essentially, Claude has been described as kind of the guy who has who knows all of Albert's darkest secrets. And I'm not suggesting Albert's done anything really, really terrible. We don't know. But anything he has done, Claude probably knows about it. It's, I think it's an interesting one because denouncing Claude was a massive risk. Albert was in a difficult position because if he did know that, if he did find some information out that was really bad, or if he did know that the police were about to start investigating Claude, he kind of couldn't really have somebody stay managing his money he was being investigated for financial corruption like you that's just <laughs> he couldn't really keep him on he, uh, he had no choice but he clearly hasn't handled it very well because Claude was really upset about the way it was managed and is now suing him and knows everything that he's ever done wrong yeah it's one of those things where if he fully supported Claude still but knew this sort of investigation was coming he could have been like look Claude I'm gonna fire you but or you can resign, you know, so it's not in disgrace. You can make the decision, um, but I'll still, you know, slip you some money on the side. But he did kind of publicly, uh, well, technically he resigned, but I think it was like a public, Albert's not happy, you're getting out of here. But he's also been like in the family for so long since, you know, Prince Rainier was monarch. So he's, you know, he not only knows all of Albert's secrets, but he'll know Rainier's and he'll know... Um, Stephanie's and you know the whole family he'll and Caroline he'll know sort of their sort of stories so if there is you know a big secret in the Monaco family releasing someone who was you know the closest person to the family outside of the family in a kind of non-friendly way with that risk of you know becoming enemies is a risk like I mean I don't think I have any particular massive secrets or enemies but like I personally if I had someone out there who knew all my secrets and I was a famous person I would be keeping them on site no matter what it took I'd be like no Claude is my bestie and I don't believe he did this I'm like Claude how could you do this to me I can't believe it but publicly we're besties okay and as we've as I mentioned you know Albert has apparently got this image of being somebody who really doesn't like conflict so it's possible they like you know dumped him by text <laughs> you know yeah I've got like someone else to do it he was like please yeah. Stephanie please 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 I don't want to do it you fire him yeah. you're bigger you know yeah. that kind yeah. of thing and so finally this is where the yacht comes in the yacht that I mentioned at the beginning Albert and Charlene and their children went on holiday on a yacht in Corsica why has this got anything to do with any of the things that I've been talking about so far the yacht is owned by a billionaire from Kazakhstan called Bulat Utemiratov Utemiratov is positioning himself as a major player in the property investment world of Monaco, like everyone else apparently. Um, <laughs> and interestingly enough, his shared investments tend to be with Patrice Pastor. I mean, I think Albert could have made the case that he's fired Claude solely because he wants Monaco to be ethically sound. But to 
fire Claude and say that he doesn't, you know, essentially that he was wrong and that he doesn't support him anymore. And then to immediately go onto a yacht that is owned by a guy who is very good friends and has shared property investments with the man who may have been responsible for Claude being fired in the first place, um, or at the very least um, is an enemy to Claude. Albert has kind of not only ditched all of his old advisors, but has publicly aligned himself with their enemy. And on top of that, Boulat is also um, a fairly shady individual. His source of wealth is a bit unclear. And given that, you know, we've mentioned this before, like Albert really did try to battle Monaco's reputation as what's called a non-cooperative tax haven. So basically the EU has a list of uh, countries that are tax havens that don't kind of share information and they don't, they're not actively trying to stop things like money laundering and tax evasion happening in, within their borders. And he, Albert works really, really hard to get Monaco taken off that list of non-cooperative tax havens. And I think, again, aligning himself very publicly with somebody whose financial dealings are quite shady doesn't help the reputation of Monaco um, as kind of a centre for nefarious criminal financial <laughs> activity. So I genuinely, I don't know if I've done a very good job, but I genuinely cannot express to people enough how bad it is potentially that he was on this guy's yacht, that he was photographed on this guy's yacht. It's like Albert and Claude had a really nasty breakup. Yeah, yeah. And Albert's spending all his time like hanging out with, you know, the person, you know, Claude's ex, you know, enemy's best friends. Be like, yeah, I'm on this side now. I hate you, Claude. I've got new friends and they happen to be dodgy criminals, but I don't care about that because we're just friends. So <laughs> Yeah, it's it's just really perplexing to me. Like, I, I I feel like there's some piece that's missing. And, you know, maybe it is just that Albert's conflict averse and somebody asked him to go on a yacht and he wanted to go on a yacht. So he went on the yacht and that's what it was. So I don't know why he is publicly aligning himself with somebody when he knows that is going to inflame tensions between somebody who between him and somebody who knows all of his darkest secrets, but also is very, clearly very, very angry. It's such a weird choice. And I think you can make all the arguments you want that, like, you know, the G4, you know, maybe they are corrupt and there's evidence of this corruption. But Patrice Pasta and Ulat Utumrotov also have evidence of corruption <laughs> just in different ways. It's not like he's sought to, like, hang out with some, you know, charity fundraisers. He's hanging out with other corrupt, just other corrupt architects and, you know, building planners. Yeah, it's it just it makes no sense to me. And I think so one of the reasons that this story has become that this these pictures on this yacht were notable was that a lot I saw a lot of people kind of being like, oh well, you know, they're staged, obviously, between Albert and Charlene, because there'd been stories that they lived separately and you know, we've talked about this a few times before, all of the stories about their marriage. And a lot of people were saying, like, oh well, they've just pretending to be on holiday together, so and they've got somebody to come and take their photographs so that they can be seen as being together and sort of you know get rid of those rumors and I think that some people think that I'm naive and I'm I'm genuinely not naive it reminded me of like the situation where a little while ago I think Harry and Meghan said in something that the royal family leaked information and there was a massive outcry because you had the Sussex fans on one side being like look we told you they leaked information and then you had all of William and Kate's fans on the other side being like no they've never leaked information in their entire lives they're perfect and wonderful Whereas I've been blogging for like 10 years and there has not been a single day in those 10 years when I have not gone. Yeah, they, they, they leak. Of course they leak. Of course they do. They're famous people. That's all famous people ever do. Course, like, yeah, stories. I'm not naive at all. Like, I do not think that Albert and Charlene are too good to 
stage photographs. I absolutely believe that it's something that they could do. And that in itself doesn't prove that their marriage is falling apart or that their marriage is fantastic because it, all it proves is that the stories bother them. If they, do, if they did stage photographs, that's all it proves is that the stories bother them. And that could be because the stories are, are true and they want to get away from that, or it could be that the stories are false and that it's really upsetting them. So it doesn't prove anything one way or another if they did stage the photographs. But I also just think in this very particular situation, why would you stage photographs of yourself with your wife, not like going out for dinner together in Monaco, but on the yacht of the one individual who will inflame, or except from Patrice, who will inflame tensions with a guy who knows all of your secrets and is right on the precipice of revealing them to everybody. This is Monaco we're talking about. Like, his, Albert's sister ran away to live with the circus, um, very literally. It's it's he has two children who were born out of wedlock to two different women. Uh, Monaco could very easily survive Albert and Charlene divorcing, but I don't know that it could survive Claude revealing every single bad thing that Albert and his father have ever done. I think they could stage photographs. I just don't think these photographs are staged. Yeah, and I also think you know stage photographs. You know they're like the whole point of them is to tell a story and <clears throat> the story they told if you want to imagine that they were staged because Albert and Charlene were you know didn't want anyone talking about the rumors of their marriage they were rubbish yeah because <laughs> yeah, it didn't help <laughs> they, it didn't help they weren't you know kissing and you know laughing and joking they were just on holiday with their kids you know they were chatting on sun loungers and walking the kids to the you know onto a yacht like they were absolutely rubbish at trying to deflect from a narrative about Albert and Charlene's wedding and their marriage state of their marriage he doesn't need to battle with the marriage rumors because they've been going on for 10 years and they've just ignored them why would they start this summer yeah, on exactly. a yacht owned by a Kazakh billionaire <laughs> <laughs> a shady Kazakh billionaire who could put the reputation of you and your country at risk like why would you do that <laughs> it's either he's a complete idiot who doesn't care at all about his country um or he just happened to be hanging out with his yeah. new besties on holiday and got photographed just yeah makes no sense but yeah so that's kind of the latest development and so claude has not exploded in public yet he's keeping himself calm obviously the, essentially the situation is the ball was in claude's court Either Albert doesn't have any secrets and has never done anything wrong in his life ever, or like they are behind the scenes deep in negotiations with Claude Palmero being like, please, like, what do you want? What do you want from us? Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how it continues to unfold. And I hope that people who are listening today have not been turned off by all of the uh, dry talk about property, the property market in Monaco and also found this as interesting as I do because I love a good corruption scandal. It was. I did, to be fair, you were like, oh, this is a corruption thing. And then I had to go and hunt down a bunch of French websites to find out some facts. But I was just like, how did I, like, it's like, how did you not, how did I not know this had happened at all like I had no inkling that this was going on so for our second topic today we are going to be talking about the second best podcast released this week <laughs> um, which um was the most recent episode of the good the bad and the rugby podcast 
which if you don't know is a unsurprisingly rugby podcast run by Alex Payne, James Haskell and Mike Tyndall. And Mike Tyndall is the husband of Zara Tyndall, who is the daughter of Princess Anne. Um, And in this most recent episode, to sort of celebrate the start of the 2023 Rugby World Cup, they had three very special guests. Mm -hmm. So their three very special guests were the Prince and Princess of Wales, who are the patrons of the Welsh Rugby Union and the Rugby Football Union, respectively, and the Princess Royal, so Princess Anne, who is the patron of the Scottish Rugby Union. So I woke up very, very late. So I, I kind of missed the boat, I think, slightly. But I saw one of the first things I saw when I went onto Tumblr was photographs taken, obviously, in Windsor Castle of uh, William and Kate sitting down with um, the three guys who I recognise in the rugby thing. Because I've seen a couple of clips when, you know, whenever they talk about Zara or whatever. And I thought, oh, isn't that nice? William and Kate are on a podcast. And then I saw Anne. I was so shocked that Anne had agreed to be on any podcast, to be honest, but also that they'd managed to get William and Kate and Anne to all sit down in the same place at the same time for an hour to talk about rugby. I genuinely was so shocked when I saw little Anne just sitting there. I also completely missed Anne when I first saw it. I was at my sister's house. I was babysitting and I didn't, she just not got any Wi-Fi. And I had my 3G off and we were washing up and I put my 3G on and the notification for the tweet from you know the prince and princess of our twitter account came through and i was like and i saw Will- and the only person i could see in the tiny crop screenshot was william and also anne but i just blanked her completely and only saw william and they it was like oh we're so great delighted to welcome and i was like ah oh, william's on the podcast i hope kate's on it too Anne's in this photo i didn't even notice her. <laughs> I, was like, oh, I really hope kate's there but no and then later on i was like oh kate's there oh Anne's there <laughs> that's a bigger shock like that is the moment I didn't know I was such an Anne fan until that moment. I was like, wow. We don't really see a lot of collaboration between like three royals at a time. Like we might see, you know, I think we've seen Anne and Kate go on one engagement together, just the two of them. But then I also think, you know, William and Kate, this is not a criticism of them, but I think that William and Kate are the kind of people who would go on a podcast as part of like a strategy to sort of make themselves seem more approachable, make themselves seem more likable and talk about the things they care about, but also, you know, with an eye on making themselves visible and, and likable and so on. And I feel like if somebody had said to her, do you want to go on a podcast? She'd be like, absolutely not. <laughs> no. no, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> so it was really, I mean, obviously there's a mic connection and I, I do have a point about that in a second, but I think that I was genuinely really surprised to see Anne because I just don't think of her as somebody who has even the slightest interest in like trying to seem warm and fuzzy by talking to a podcaster. Yeah. And I was really shocked. All three of them did the full 50 minute podcast. Like, I don't know what I expected. Like it was going to be like a 15 minute special or something, (laughs) but like it was a full, you know, nearly an hour of them just sat down chatting, which was almost more of a shock to me. I did get um, a message that I want to address now. And I deleted it because it's, it did one of my pet peeves. Um, so just this is a, a total uh, tangent, but I really don't like when people send me something that is not actually a question, but they put a question mark at the end. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's I, I don't mean like a rhetorical question or like, you know, it's, question marks can be used flexibly. And I, you know, I do it all the time when it's like you're expressing disbelief at something. But it was basically essentially like, um, oh, so when are the royals going to go to Pippa Middleton's house for, you know, or, or to do an engagement there and blah 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 um and essentially the implication was like it's not really 
great that they went on this podcast that was hosted by somebody who is a member of their family. And honestly, I get we get a lot of things like this. And it does make <laughs> me laugh because we're talking about a royal family. Um, <laughs> like, it, it's just, it seems strange to be like, okay, it's fine to have a system of government which is based solely on, you know, the order that you were born and who you were born to. But it's not okay for three people who are patrons of rugby, of different rugby leagues, and their job is to promote the sport, um, going on to the UK's most popular rugby podcast, because it happens to be run by their relative, who is in his own right, one of the greatest English rugby players of all time and was before he became their relative. Like, it makes no sense to me to be upset about that or to say that that therefore implies that they're just going to go and hang up Pippa Middleton's house for an engagement. Like, if Mike Tyndall wasn't there, I think William and Kate would have still gone on that podcast. Obviously, Mike Tyndall is famous in his own right and as a member of the royal family, but, like, James Haskell is part of the Richard and Judy dynasty, which yes. I think should be mentioned. <laughs> you know, they are... <laughs> <laughs> They're famous in their own way. <laughs> <laughs> We've got the Redgraves, <laughs> Attenborough family, and the Richard and Judy's. <laughs> They're all equally important. It was a perfect like melting pot of reasons why they should do it. And also it was at Windsor Castle, so it's not even Mike's house. Yeah. It's no one's house at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so there's so many things like William and Kate and Anne didn't benefit financially from going on this podcast. You might be able to argue that Mike did because maybe they'll get increased money from ad revenue or whatever. But I would say that's the case all the time because he talks about his wife and children, <laughs> um, which of course he does because they're important parts of his family, a lot. And people like me will watch clips of their podcast and will listen to bits of their podcast because he mentions royals so that's an unavoidable fact that he is going to get some of the money that he gets from the podcast because of who he is related to or who he's married uh, the family he's married into so that's an unavoidable thing anyway um but also like I've always said that you know royals because of the position they have in society they will know probably the most powerful and influential people in most industries I could go and I could do a whole podcast episode on finding all of the links between their patronages and their personal friends. Like if we want to start doing Put this, it on a list. Yeah, it's <laughs> gonna be it's gonna be a long thing if we start want to start, you know, if they can't be connected to anything that has some some connection to somebody that they know. Like that's gonna be impossible. Um, but also like my view has always been so that you know, they've got these connections to lots of different people. Um, but if that person earned their connection or is, you know that's what they do every day anyway then I don't see it as being a problem so for example if Mike was a plumber who just liked rugby and did a podcast that five people listened to and they went on it because he was their relative that would be an issue but it's actually an incredibly popular podcast and he's a very very respected rugby player ex-rugby player um and then uh if it had been you know uh, that the royals had never expressed any interest in rugby whatsoever and they were just going on that podcast to talk about their kids or um, their favourite colour, then that would be weird. But these three people are the three patrons of the rugby unions. This is their job to, to represent them and to promote them and whatever. At some point I did go, should they have done this? And then we went, yeah, of course they should. Like, it doesn't even matter. Mm. I remember, I don't remember, it must have been about 2003, around when England won the World Cup, there was this show on CBBC where they got rugby players on and Mike Tyndall was on at one time and I was like wow I have a crush on this man I am a bit of a and that's when his nose was a wonky I was fully into really I didn't know that about you I was I was completely obsessed then he kind of faded from my consciousness but when I sort of came back in through royals and people were like it's so weird that you know Mike Tyndall's doing all this I'm like no he is very famous in his own right 
but that's that, so those are my general impressions of like the fact that they did this podcast and then obviously in the podcast itself it they did a very good balance of speaking about rugby um and every now and then they would very deliberately bring it back to rugby and they spoke about rugby in Scotland and rugby in Wales and rugby in England they spoke about the World Cup they spoke about the importance of different sort of aspects of rugby and sport in general and also putting in this kind of private world sort of tidbits that everyone wanted to hear. I mean one of the things that I came away from it thinking was like and this is going to sound like such a stupid thing to say and so obvious but gosh Anne does know a lot about rugby. She really does. I don't know what's changed in rugby in the past 37 years but she does not like it. No. She was like really adamant about it. But she, it was just like she was talking about things that about like the changes, yeah, the changes over time and kind of what it was like to talk to the players, but also like, oh, she was saying like, oh, I think the stamina levels have changed because of this and because of that. And it was like, it was like listening to somebody who is actually an expert. And I think to be a patron, you have to know a little bit so you can have a conversation about it. And of course, if you've been doing something for 30 odd years, you're going to know about it. I know that, you know, Mike has also said quite a few times about how she's so knowledgeable and she knows more about rugby than him and all those sorts of things. But to actually see it, just kind of like she was talking about it with that level of comfort of like a, a real expert. Yeah, and I thought it was really telling because like the very first thing she said in the podcast, like within the first minute was like, I was never even supposed to be the patron for the Scottish Rugby Union. Like like they asked her to open East Stand um, and then she could go because her horse was lame and then... Now she's patron and she's been patron for 37 years and she knows so much about the sport. Like, imagine if her horse wasn't lame that day and she did have to go to an inventing thing. Who would be the patron of Scottish rugby? I don't know. I'm trying to figure out who let them down opening the East Stand. I'm like, yeah, was that another yeah. royal? Who, was busy? who wasn't busy that weekend? Obviously, I don't know anything about rugby, so she could have been saying a lot of stuff that was completely false. But it sounded really good and they all were nodding along and agreeing with her. And as somebody who knows nothing about it, I was sitting there like, ooh, really? Yeah, the game has changed, Anne, you're right. <laughs> One of the other things that I, I noted, um, particularly coming off the back of recent conversations we've had on this podcast as well, is they love women. <laughs> they really do. There was a lot of mention of women's rugby. And actually, and to her credit, and we've said this before, a lot of it came from Kate. Um, she spoke really eloquently about like how Charlotte is now playing rugby and football at school. And that is not something that Kate would have been exposed to when she was at school. She was playing sort of hockey and traditionally female sports. Um, and so I felt like there were quite a few occasions where Kate brought it back to being about women. And, you know, she hasn't been patron of the rugby for very long, but we've said before in one of our previous episodes that like right off the, right out of the gate, she was talking to female rugby players. She was talking to rugby players with disabilities. I don't know when this was recorded. I don't know if this was something that they sort of went, okay, we've got to mention the women because William got criticised for not mentioning the women or if it was beforehand. But it felt really natural coming from Kate and it seemed like this genuinely is something that she's interested in. Yeah, I did absolutely crack up when they were talking about how many people went to go and watch the Lionesses play football. Mm. I was like, William's right there, guys. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He is quite famously like the headline of the didn't go and watch England play. Yeah, like, maybe it was recorded before me. then. <laughs> yeah, I was like, he's right there. Um, but um, yeah, I thought it was, yeah, and I thought it was really notable. I really liked the fact that Kate and Anne both spoke about sort of 
when the the um, James Haskell was talking about sort of his rugby heroes growing up and his sporting heroes, and it was really easy to come up with them. And both Kate and Anne said they had rugby, they had heroes, but they were individual sports like tennis players or hurdlers. Um, and it's really nice now that there are girls growing up and their heroes are one of the lionesses or one of the you know members of the women's rugby team who are in a team because it is a different sort of it's a different sport and it's really interesting because I hadn't ever really thought about it like that I'd never really yeah. thought like you know tennis and football are different I know they're different but I never really considered like tennis and football are both sports but they're both you approach them very differently like football is a team game rugby is a team game you have to be all about supporting others and um building others up whereas tennis it's all about yourself and that mentality um and for a very long time there wasn't that representation for women in team sport yeah they talked a lot actually about like not just in the conversation about women but just sort of generally about like it wasn't specifically about sort of this is why I love rugby it was more about kind of this is the value I think of team sports and this is what I got from being able to participate in team sports and this is like it was it was a lot I felt like almost like these are the character traits that I think I have built and other people can build from participating in team sports. Yeah, I think William spoke really eloquently about the importance of learning to lose. But I thought, you know, he said that, like, he it's really important to know not to, like, be a braggy winner or to be, like, a sore loser. And you do lose and you need to know how to lose. And it's something, you know, I'm a teacher and I say to the kids all the time, like, you have to learn to be wrong and make mistakes because it's going to happen in your life. Um, although I did quite like, I did listen to this bit back quite a few times, but when he said something like, you know, I want to make sure our children, you know, understand how to be bad at losing, someone in the background went, are they sore losers? And I do not know if it was Mike, Mike Tindall or James Haskell, but one of them said it and then it cut and it's the most obvious cut in the whole thing. So I like to imagine it just spiralled for a moment into just chaos. Like you were saying, it's like that balance of the talking about the rugby and talking about their own experiences is like, um, they were talking about kind of teaching their own children to be good, you know, good losers and to, you know, and the sports that they have accessible to them in school and the sports that they did when they were young. But they was also talking just generally about the game. So it was like it was a good balance of kind of personal anecdotes without it feeling like this is just an, an excuse for them to go and talk about themselves. It was still always connecting back to rugby. I'm going to this is kind of a tan sort of a sidestep to one of my other points but um I think the relationship between Anne and Mike was the oh, big yeah. the highlight for me I don't I, Anne I love Anne but she's not somebody who I necessarily think of as being very relaxed or kind of expressive um I feel like she's always sort of on guard but like she was ha clearly having the time of her life and just the way her and Mike like you know had jokes at each other's expense and kind of uh the, you know there were so many fun moments between the two of them and I just was like she clearly you know Mike could never tell them like one of those mother-in-law jokes because he obviously has such a good relationship with his mother-in-law yeah I think at seeing Anne's relationships with everyone was really nice because obviously I mean obviously we know Will and Kate get on yeah. they're married <laughs> and we know the Wellses have a good relationship with you know a really good relationship with Mike and Zara but we, you know, like you said, like Mike and Anne were sort of joking with each other, like her, her and William were, like they were checking in, they were talking about, you know, childhood stories and, and, you know, she was teasing Kate at one point. And 
I, you know, I like Anne. But I've always said I'm absolutely terrified of her. Like, I definitely want to meet her because I'd be so scared. Um, it was just really nice to see how completely happy and relaxed they all were with each, in each other's company. And also they had these stories about all these things they've done together because they're a family. Like, yeah, of course they have, you know, remember this time they went running around a corner because that's they've grown up together for 40 years and they're a nice, happy family. <laughs> the tone of the podcast worked really well because it's not just Mike, who's a family member, but it's also like they're just a bunch of blokes. And that was so they kind of set the tone as hosts for a really relaxed atmosphere where people were kind of making fun of each other, but in a sort of very lighthearted way. And they managed to, through setting that tone, they managed to get some really sort of nice little anecdotes that we wouldn't normally get. So like some personal highlights for me, when Mike said something about Anne being a good driver (laughs) and she went like, ooh, Um, so it was clear that like I don't know maybe this is a talking point in their family about like Anne can't drive or nobody you know people think she's a bad driver and so he was saying or he doesn't praise her or something like that but she was talking about driving at Silverstone and he was like oh yeah she's actually quite a good driver and then William was sort of like oh what you know what what are you after what do you want so he's praising her because he wants something sort of thing it was very like a family a normal family interaction Um, and then like William talking about how he cried at Zara's win at the European Championships. And um, then Kate was like chiming in like, oh yeah, I remember when you came back, you said that you'd never been so proud of anybody before. And it was like, it could have just been William telling this sweet story, but it was like Kate going, oh no, yeah, I remember you saying that to me. And then I'm going, oh yeah, this is my memory of it. And like, it was just the flow between them all. It wasn't just like sharing anecdotes as William and Kate do quite a lot. It felt like, a conversation amongst family members about an anecdote. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I, I went back and looked when Zara won individual gold in the European European Championships, and it was 2005. So it was quite a long time ago. Like, it was very early in the Will and Kate relationship era. Um, but, like, for them all to be like, this is such a pivotal moment in our lives and just sort of, like you said, it was the, it was the flow, it was that natural conversation they did bounce off each other and like you said there's such an importance of the hosts because they had this they let them bounce and chat and then every now and then they sort of step in to steer it and you know they are very good at their job I'm gonna get on that yeah for sure I think um it reminded me the most similar tone I've had I've seen is the Scott Mills interview for Radio One that William and Kate did for Heads Together that's the only one that I feel is a similar tone and that was because again because Scott Mills basically went in and was like okay so can you are you allowed to get takeaways are you allowed to go to music festivals it was like a child who had been given the opportunity to interview the royal family and ask them all the questions that he'd ever wanted to ask them and they kept trying to be like okay and this is why it relates to mental health and trying to bring it back but it was just it was it felt like an excited little kid who was getting to interview them and this is a different tone but it's it felt the same in that it like I think with some podcast hosts and interviewers and things, it feels like there's a fear of asking certain things or like there's a power dynamic that's in the room that, you know, they know that the royal has the power and they kind of have to please them in the interview. Whether that's coming from the royals or not, there's that that feeling when you go into a room with a royal that they are somebody special and you are not. (laughs) Um, Whereas with this, it just kind of felt like banter. Something that really stood out to me was how similar Will and uh, William and Anna as people, like, there was something, you know, James Haskell was t- making a joke about he was going to go and nick some silverware. And she said, oh, it's all screwed down now. And I, could, <laughs> I swear I've heard that coming out of William's mouth before. Like, 
I if you told me William had said that, I would fully believe you. Like they are the same person, just a generation apart. 100%. Yeah, and it's really interesting because William's work is all about like leading with optimism and all, you know, people get <laughs> bogged down by all the criticism. Anyway, but then um, he, when they, you know, and Anne had been the one who throughout this had sort of repeatedly been like, oh, well, you know, I don't expect anything. Um, never have any <laughs> optimism. Don't care. You know, it was, it was all very Anne. But then there was a moment towards the end where they were talking about like the chances of winning and things. And William sort of said, oh, well, you know, it's the hope that gets you. If you have too much hope and then you don't do well, then it sort of, it crushes you. So I try not to have too much hope about things. And I was like, that is literally what Anne just said, <laughs> except in a more fluffy William way. And then Kate came in right after that and was like, yeah, I think we're going to win, probably. Yeah. We'll win that first game. We'll probably win. Yeah, <laughs> yeah good for you. Um, I really liked the fact that William said he hated football as a child and just wasn't into it at all. That surprised um, me. And now he's addicted. I know. I just assumed he'd grown up loving football. Yeah, same. Because he's a boy in England. That's what they do. But I did like the fact he called himself addicted now. Um he was like, yeah, I'm addicted. I'm on my phone all the time trying to keep up with the Aston Villa score. Um, some of the kids are spotting Aston Villa. I desperately want to know which one doesn't. I'm convinced it's Lowy. And yeah. I'm like, don't care. Don't care about this. I like Manchester United. Uh, yeah, I've picked my own team and that's where I'm supporting. I like, you know, the the kind of, the amount of sort of celebrating Kate they did towards the end of the podcast. Like, I like the part where Kate was talking about her cold water swimming and how she, like, tries to throw herself into things. And then Mike has to do it because he's the big, bulky rugby player. And if Kate can do it, of course he's got to do it. So she's lobbing herself in a lake at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and Mike's like, God, I really don't want to do this. It sounded like no matter where she is, she tries to find a body of water to swim in. <laughs> and I just like the idea of her, like going on holiday somewhere and roaming the countryside to try and find a cold lake that she could go swimming in. Yeah, she kept being like, oh, the colder the better. Like, I'm always there, like, by myself at the dark. And I'm just imagining her poor security guard on the land being like, <laughs> Catherine, can't see you. I, and, you know, I think there was, you know, these little jokes they did about, I remember them making these jokes after Kate's first visit to, you know, the rugby union, where she did that line jump. And they were talking then about how good it was. But they were just, I, it almost sounded like initially it was very flattering, but they're here, they're like, no, it genuinely was like so good and we're really annoyed. <laughs> like, how was it that good? I just liked seeing them being a family and talking about those really sort of casual family moments, like, you know, Anne and Will talking about racing and then the stories of different races they were talking about, you know, around Balmoral. They spoke about racing in go-karts and, you know, racing on horses and chasing each other and Anne trying to catch William, but he was too fast for her and all these little things. And, you know, royals always need a bit of humanising and I think possibly now more than they have for a long time. But it did such a good job of making them just sound like a normal family. Yeah, for sure. Um, Those little touches of like, oh yeah, we actually talk to each other. We're not just robots who who pop up for royal engagements and then go away again. Like, actually we go home and we're like, oh, this happened to me today. My overall impression um, is basically, I have absolutely zero interest in rugby. My view of rugby is, I don't care, but at least it's not football. That's the only thing that I have (laughs) to say about rugby. Um, And yet... I thoroughly enjoyed the entire 50 minute podcast by the when it got to the end I was like oh I wish there was more and that's all that you can really say I think for a podcast
is all we have got for this week. I hope you enjoyed our two topics. We hope that you want this podcast episode to carry on too, like we did with the good, the bad and the rugby. <laughs> um, but uh, until next week, it is goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.